May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. On this week's episode, we are on a collision course between Margaret and the most preeminent neurosurgeon of the time. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine physician, and a diplomat of the Board of Clinical Lipidology and Lifestyle Medicine. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain, available in both print and audio forms. My goal is to help you go beyond just learning to live with, but to lessen and even reverse, in some cases, fibromyalgia to the levels of those who do not have fibromyalgia. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. The information presented in this book is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be and should not be interpreted as medical advice for any medical condition and any individual. It is also not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. The content presented is provided as a starting point in your research and a helpful guide when discussing your individual circumstances with your trusted medical doctors. All listeners are strongly urged to seek medical attention and guidance regarding any symptoms or health concerns. And now on to this week's episode. Last week we left off where Margaret was caring for her father who was fading away with worsening health issues. He had said that Margaret is so much like her mother that it lightens the load. Unfortunately, the blessing for her father was also a huge cross to bear for Margaret. In the middle of one of her father's crises in January 1943, she summarized her life for her friends. If the war's catastrophe and her father's health prompted this assessment, a new round of physical ills finally confirmed it. She had opened a new decade with major surgery. Her abdominal adhesions had troubled her chronically for 20 years. She had first undergone corrective surgery for the condition in 1921. The symptoms regularly flared afterward, and her physicians recommended operating again after the novel's publication. The concept of irritable bowel didn't exist then. When your paradigm for abdominal pain and cramping consists of adhesions, other anatomical disorders, or something infectious like appendicitis, then you will solve it with the only way you know how to, which is surgery. Unfortunately, this was not the first surgical attempt to alleviate her pain and suffering. 
she agreed to have surgery to repair these so-called adhesions. Still, the always imminent premiere of the Gone with the Wind movie delayed the procedure week after week, month after month. In mid-1940, as the excitement over the film had subsided, she signed into St. Joseph's Hospital one more time. She had planned to spend the year recovering, but the pressure of the war kept delaying her surgery. The bellyaches, as she called them, did not improve. Moreover, other still mysterious ailments now made their appearance. Inexplicable fevers and the oddest symptoms wore down her strength in the early war years. She described them to a specialist after one of her flare-ups. I began running a temperature again. Diarrhea was terrible at the time, and I had the usual accompanying skin eruptions on the chest and some on the scalp. Sometimes these bumps on the scalp remain so long that I have to have them burnt off. Those on the chest persist, too, and generally leave small scars. The fever is accompanied by sweating, which is also usual. The usual headaches, which accompany the temperature, last only about a week. Ordinarily, they are the worst features of all of these symptoms. Debilitating unpleasantness characterize these flare-ups. Bad headaches, fatigue, depression, anxiety, and aching muscles as well. Although she said the condition had plagued her for many years, in the fall of 1942, it grew so bad that she checked herself into the research hospital at John Hopkins University to allow their experts to evaluate her. Johns Hopkins would be like a Mayo Clinic day where some of the latest research was happening and people would go long distances to be evaluated for rare or difficult-to-treat conditions. She underwent every test known to the most advanced medical team in the country. Still, the physicians found no organic condition to account for the various fevers, sweats, skin eruptions, and stomach pains the author suffered. The diagnosis given was, in effect, an idiopathic cause which stands for unknown. She rejected their diagnosis, so they rechecked her labs. Still, nothing appeared. While during their physical examinations, they did perceive that she had a ruptured vertebrae disc in her back. How they made this diagnosis is uncertain. A renowned neurosurgeon was performing cutting-edge lumbar disc surgeries. I am dubious that she had a herniated disc without the imaging studies we have today. Or, if she did have a herniated disc that they were able to detect on some crude imaging study using x-rays, I am strongly suspicious that it actually was causing any pain. We know from studies that there are many people walking around with herniated discs and disc bulge who have no symptoms at all. And yet there are people who can have pain in their back without any evidence of a herniated disc. Moving on, the physicians repeated their assessments in both oral and written diagnoses. The internal medicine doctor said, 
I want to stress the fact that we did not find any organic cause except the ruptured intervertebral disc. The physicians insisted that the disc had no bearing whatsoever on her physical complaints, however. They maintained that her back should be plaguing her and recommended an operation to cure the problem. Despite the doctor's repeated denials, the author decided on her own that the rupture disc was indeed the culprit for all of her pain. These different interpretations created a clear dilemma. She was hoping to be entirely cured despite the doctors never making that promise. With physicians recommending surgery for a condition that she did not acknowledge, the patient consented to surgery to correct another set of symptoms for which they found no organic cause and did not feel it would have any benefit in treating. This situation foreshadowed a crisis of severe disappointments. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Relations with her chief physician grossly complicated the difficulties as well. Her neurosurgeon, Dr. Walter Dandy, was the most prominent in the United States. He left an indelible mark on the field. Medical journals cite his practices and discoveries 50 years after his death. In his prime, the great and famous flew to him from all over the world. The family of George Gorshwin had consulted him before the musician's death, and he had tried to save Thomas Wolfe in that writer's last illness. He pioneered vertebral fusion and operated over 500 times by the spring of 1943. All evidence supported the idea that Dr. Dandy was a virtual miracle worker. He was a great man to his residents and these assistants early and had encouraged Mitchell to let Dr. Dandy wave his magic wand over her. However, Dr. Dandy lacked the human touch for all his medical genius. As a complete scientist, he had no sympathy for sympathy. Blunt, outspoken, bully, and devoid of personal grace himself, he utterly discounted bedside manner. As part of his rise to national and international fame, he also possessed a growing ego which not coincidentally provoked hatred as well as devotion among fellow neurosurgeons. He treated his assistants like servants and condescended to all his patients. He remembered them, according to his biographer, not as names or individuals, but as physical disabilities. Margaret had her own ego and strong interest in neuroscience. She had read a lot in this area. However, her failure to impress Dr. Dandy likely was meant to tease and calculated to set off Margaret. She had determined that Dr. Dandy's unspoken opinion of her non-back pain symptoms was psychosomatic. Psychosomatic would have been equated as imaginary and not real. 
this conflict set off a collision course that would be of near epic proportions. One of the reasons why the subtitle of my book is called Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain is because I know that for many decades, people with fibromyalgia have been told that this is all in their head, implying that is a purely imaginary problem. Now, we know in one sense it's in the head and that it is a problem with how the brain processes it, but it is often misused and then misunderstood as just something that is equivalent to a hallucination or something that is just purely a mindset that can be turned on and off. This conflict says a lot about both Margaret and the practice of medicine at the time as shown through Dr. Dandy. The following is the chronology of the most horrible times of Margaret's life. She boarded the train for Johns Hopkins Hospital on March 20, 1943. She hobbled home to Atlanta on April 19th. The agonies began immediately. The surgery failed to alleviate any of her pains. My spine, which should have bothered me enormously, has always been a minor discomfort, she told some family friends. My knees, hips, and foot, which the doctors say I never should have had, keep singing like larks. Worse, the pain spread and intensified after the operation. Her right foot and leg, which had never bothered her before, now ached and burned relentlessly. Her left foot pain amplified to levels unseen previously. This pain drove her into severe emotional distress. If you recall, she had prior problems when she was in her 20s with her left foot that was broken. However, it did not seem to heal in the typical weeks that is expected, but took years to get better. Where I had only spots of pain in the left leg, I now have what appears to be complete sciatic nerve involvement. As for her back, it is worse than before and involves a larger area, she lamented. This surgery heightened the pains that were minor before surgery. There are many triggers for fibromyalgia and flare-ups. Similar attempts to treat fibromyalgia with surgery have been repeated innumerably since the time of Margaret Mitchell's failed surgery. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. What can we learn from Margaret's story? If you had similar stories with surgery to treat your symptoms of fibromyalgia? Proper recognition and treatment of fibromyalgia and other central pain processing disorders is critical. Fibromyalgia didn't exist in the minds of the medical community. I had a recent patient with fibromyalgia who had obvious radicular pain from a compressed nerve exiting her lumbar spine. The surgeon was aware that she had more post-op pains than expected. These represented worsened fibromyalgia symptoms that prompted him to restart her fibromyalgia medications quickly. 
Four months after she returned to Atlanta, she had only recovered about 75% from these new aches, let alone the problems she went in for. I will be happy just to make a complete recovery from surgery, even if I never get any relief from the original problem, she complained. There was emotional distress that built over time after surgery. Her trust in the medical community waned as her frustrations ballooned. She recalls an unempathetic attitude from her doctor in the recovery room. Dr. Dandy likely had operated on her back, but I suspect he may not have seen what he was expecting. Previously, in most of his lumbar disc surgeries, he may have seen clear proof of a herniated disc with compression of the nerves. Her recognition of his antagonism led to increased agitation when they returned to the hospital in Atlanta. Her husband, John Marsh, summarized this. Dr. Dandy seemed annoyed with her for disappointing his expectations. Another example of blaming the patient if you are not getting better. The regimen ordered by the doctors offended her, which added to the evidence of Dr. Dandy's callous view of her suffering. I suspect he was impatient with her persistent pain and difficulty progressing with therapy. She likely struggled with simple tasks like getting out of bed and walking, which most of his patients had moved through quickly. John Marshall, her husband, fumed. Margaret told me that she would have gone home if she had to walk every step of the way, for she was anxious to be in a quiet and restful place where, if she were suffering, she would not be hauled out of bed, forced to walk, and then told all her pain was nervous. Margaret and John heightened their distrust of the staff. He believed that everyone viewed her as neurotic. Therefore, everything she said should be discounted or disbelieved. Her pains were assumed to be imaginary, and she was treated on that basis. They were overlooked entirely. Every time she reported pain was viewed as more proof of her neurosis. They had heard her story of chronic idiopathic pain ahead of time. They assumed she must be, as they described it, temperamental. She must be nervous, queer, neurotic. John wrote to Dr. Dandy afterward that she was made to feel that she was being a great trouble and annoyance to busy people because her pains and discomforts were considered neurotic imaginings and unreal. She became hesitant about saying anything when she was in pain and, in fact, began to worry if she really had become neurotic. He described her as mystified, embarrassed, mortified, and bewildered. She wondered if you all did not consider her crazy or a liar when she was even refused simple relief for discomforts. If she had been entirely sane before, the hospital made her crazier. While she strongly rejected the diagnosis of nerves as the cause of her illnesses, Margaret conceded the connection to her symptoms in another way. She proclaimed that the neurosurgeon's lack of understanding gave her a case of the nerves, even where she did not have any before. She felt nerves did not cause her problems, but they did interfere with her recovery. When I first left the hospital, I found it bad enough to be painfully disabled without being told that I had no physical reason for any disability, she wrote Dr. Dandy. 
When I know how and why I feel bad, I don't worry about it, and I try to do the things which are within my reach. I had a bad time at the hospital, she explained to friends, not only because I had a bad time, but because the doctor insisted that the reason I was in pain was because I was nervous. After the operation, Margaret's case and also the Marsh's fury thoroughly mystified the surgeon. I must say it is beyond my comprehension, he replied to John Marsh's first angry indictment in May. I just cannot see how there can be pain there now, and I've had experience with over 500 cases. He replied in trying to be the most delicate about the forbidden subject of nerves. I have never had anyone who has gone this long with the pain. Some of them have gone a few weeks, but always it has stopped. It was for that reason that I felt all along that it must be a nervous state. The operation went as it always does, and nothing could go wrong. I should like to see her get interested in her literary work and do a little more each day to divert her mind. Frankly, I know you did not like to hear that it is nerves, and I do not like to say it, but I just cannot explain it on any other basis. Because Dr. Dandy had such a rudimentary understanding of the complex nervous system, he had to give a overarching diagnosis of her symptoms as being a case of the nerves. And admittedly, Margaret recognized that there was no doubt the effect of her nerves, her anxiety that did likely play a role. She had reported that much earlier in her life on the impact of fibromyalgia. Unfortunately, what Dr. Dandy and Margaret and John Marsh and all the other patients who had struggles like Margaret at the time, they didn't have an up-to-date understanding. There was not the development of functional MRIs that looked at how the blood flows to different parts of the brain when they're used more actively. Research has demonstrated that truly she was in pain, but the pain was not in response to a mechanical or inflammatory process that she had pain. And as we know with fibromyalgia, acute pain as from surgery is appropriate and part of healing. But unfortunately, those with fibromyalgia, their brains have a much harder time turning off the diffuse pain that gets activated when one region in the body gets injured. I talk about that in more detail in my book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. It is easy to recognize how frustrating it would be to be a patient like Margaret without any education and information on fibromyalgia and also to be a physician who thought definitely there was something going on, nervous slash anxiety or within how the brain is looking at things, but not able to give any evidence-based explanation of how her brain and the alarm was going off inappropriately or at a much higher level than 
would be expected. On next week's episode, we will hear how Margaret and her husband responded to this explanation. How would you respond? And how have you responded to struggles with fibromyalgia? I'd love to hear your story. Please send me an email at drmichaellens at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. This podcast is meant for you. If you have fibro, it's meant for your loved ones who don't have fibro. And it's meant for physicians who want to get a deeper understanding of what it is to have fibromyalgia, understand what fibromyalgia is, and hope to learn more to help lessen the symptoms and even go to the point of reversing levels to those who are unaffected. Hearing her story is likely to evoke a lot of empathy for Margaret. My hope in sharing her story is that what she went through does not have to be repeated. That's why if you enjoyed this podcast episode and the series as well as the other podcasts, please hit the like or subscribe button, share this with others, post this on your social media sites because that is one way that you can do your part to help spread the word about fibromyalgia. Until next week, go team fibro.